Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We might grow the wheat, but we send the wheat to Indonesia to make the noodles and they send it back to us so we can buy it in Coles or Woolies. So, you know, it's all these interdependencies that I'm not sure the current political system is well set up to work through. Even though there have been so many reports put in bottom drawers where people have thought about this. Hello, people of pods, and welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy, a political editor of Guardian Australia and the host. And with me in the studio is one of my favourite people. Gabriel Chan. She's back again. I'm back. <laughs> she can't been, get rid of me. Well, well, she's been off the pod. It's hilarious. She's been off the pod for yonks, doing all kinds of important, capital I, oh, important. Important, <laughs> important work from the farm, which is why we're together today, to uh, get into her latest project, which is about to hit the book chops. But uh, anyway, enough of that for the minute. We, we're going to start in a slightly different place, although not really, are we? Not really. No. Quite linked, no. actually. Anyway. Sorry, there was a point to this. Yes, Gabby was on a couple of weeks ago when we were, what would we call that, Barnaby Joyce, what the WTF. Yeah. Yes, we did that episode. How did that happen? How did that happen? Barnaby Joyce, how did that happen? (laughs) Oh, my God, here we are again. Yes, anyway, this week I'm going to set up our conversation with a report that uh, logged through the week. Again, because we've all been so COVID hectic terrible circumstances playing out in Sydney. G'day if you're listening in Sydney. Uh, Hang in there. We're thinking of you. I know this is really tough and awful. So, and obviously people are being very focused on the pandemic at the moment. So you may not have missed, or sorry, you may not have seen the latest A-Bears. It's now A-Bears. Yeah, it is. Why has it got the S? Uh, Sorry. Science. Science has been added. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Anyway, Used to be A-Bear, singular, now it's A-Bears with an S, has produced a a report that I think they produce pretty regularly. It came out on Thursday. And what it found was that broadacre farmers, I mean, found a lot of things, but this is a central bit, broadacre farmers are producing almost 30% more than they were back in 1989. So productivity has increased significantly. But there's a flip side. Profits have been hit over the past 20 years, not because farmers are doing anything worse, but because of, wait for it, wait for it, I know you'll be shocked, <laughs> climate change. Ta-da! Who knew? So climate trends, you know, the, the worsening in the weather patterns, drier, all of that stuff has basically prompted a fall in profits for farms of almost 30,000 a year. Now, 
<laughs> seeing this prompted me to uh, reach out to my good friend Gabby Chan because it's almost like there's a book in this. Oh, there's definitely a book in it. In fact, there's too many books in it, really. <laughs> well, astonishingly, there is one particular book in it and it's yours. It is. It is. How did I know? How did How I know? How did you know? How did you know living in the middle of these streets? How did you know? Anyway, yes, Gabby, uh, Gabby's book is coming out, well, pick me up here. August 31st. And it's called? Why You Should Give a Fuck About Farming. Yes. And, uh, well, the book is about more than that, and, and we're going to go through this in this conversation, why you've written it, what you found, why it's important. Uh, but that sort of pivot point that was in the Abares report this week is basically the sort of spine of the book. Pretty it? much, pretty much. So let's let's start there. Tell the listeners, what have you found in this project? What have you found? So in order to say what I've found, I, I just want to set it up a bit because I started with that question, should you care about farming? Mm-hmm. The whole deregulation agenda over the last 30 years since we were baby journalists really has been about efficiency, competition policy, removing all the protections that Australian farmers were cocooned by and making a more streamlined, mean fighting machine out of Australian farms. And in the process of that, I think there was a big clearing out. There was a clearing out that got rid of very inefficient people, uh, businesses, I should say. And things changed a lot from the 80s to now. But in the last decade or so, I think competition policy really changed a lot of things and the big businesses got bigger and bigger. Uh, And so there's been this hollowing out of the middle. Now, some of that is masked by that productivity Mm. story in the ABES, right? The fact that you know, farms are so much more productive than they were in that time, has sort of papered over the cracks that have been appearing, I think, in the last decade or so. And one of those is climate change. Mm-hmm. So productivity is starting to decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to a point where I think farming stands at the kind of intersection of a lot of the world's existential threats. Mm-hmm. So the so mm-hmm. the 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 issues that are big global issues, farming is basically highly exposed to those issues and that's things like climate change, soil loss, water shortages, geopolitical trade wars, uh, natural disasters, zoonotic diseases Mm. that cause things like pandemics. Mm. All of these things are affected by farming and farming also contributes to things like climate change, depending on how it's done. So I think all of these kind of areas are so deeply wired into farming that it just surprises me that this kind of economy that we have said really was born on the sheep's back, Mm. we don't actually think about it. We've sort of, I think the deregulation agenda kind of created this theory that the market was the natural setting. Mm. You know, if you got governments out of out of the way and you just left humans to their own devices, you would have this free market where it would find its natural yeah, well, where, level. Where resources are allocated efficiently, yeah. efficiently, consumers win, all of this sort of stuff. Yeah. 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 But we just know that 
the world isn't like that mm. because we don't have that perfect information. We don't have complete transparency into these things. And we've seen that play out in lots of industries, not just farming. But I thought it was time to look at the whole farming caper, mm. uh, work out why it is like the way it is now and possibly where it, where it's going and who's thinking about it? Yeah, and uh, let's let's pause for a sec because it's uh, we should obviously acknowledge that every week there might be new listeners tuning into the pod, and uh, if you uh, if you're a bit confused about how naturally and easily we just ran into this conversation with one another, let me just set up a, cu- a couple of things for you quickly. Uh, Gabby lives on a farm in Harden, which is close to Canberra, where she and I have worked together for quite a long time. So she has, uh, strangely, in a weird way, even though you've been living on the front line of all of these intersections, it took stepping out of daily journalism really to be able to look at it holistically from from your vantage point rather than through the lens of Canberra, which is uh, where she and I have worked for a long time. So Gabby, uh, Gabby and I have worked together at Guardian Australia and this is her second book. She uh, actually wrote shortly after leaving daily journalism a few years ago, she wrote the first in this series is was a book called Rusted Off, which was the best political book of that year. And investigated really why, um, well, the disconnect between Canberra and regional Australia. And this one looks at farming as she set up brilliantly and beautifully through all of these intersection points. So that's just catching you up in case you're new to the podcast. If that's true, welcome. Um, Now, let's just sort of go back a fraction, right? So you came at this book by looking at farming. Where is it at? Why should we care about it? Like that's the title of the book. Why should we care about it? Now, I th- the answer to that question is pretty obvious to me, but it may not necessarily be obvious to everyone. So in a couple of sentences, why should we care about it? Because farming, food, <laughs> food because you eat, <laughs> mm. number one, mm. uh, because farmers manage more than half of the land mass of Australia. So w- what farmers do, whether they get it right or wrong, has an impact on the rest of Australia. I think farming and land management, and I include Indigenous Mm. land managers in this and Indigenous farmers who are often left out of the equation, Um, what they do matters in the way they care for land. And those elements are going to be central to climate change amelioration policies, mitigation policies going forward. Mm. So how they interact not just in order to grow food, but also how how that interacts with, say, en- energy production, yep. water usage. Uh, none of these things can be extricated from farming mm. because the way we use land is central. And I think that what I've seen in the political debate in the last couple of decades is this kind of siloed argument you talk about environmental policy over on one side of the equation and then you talk about agriculture over the other as if they're not nested, yep, well, yes. as if agriculture isn't nested in the environment. Well, as, well and as if they're at odds. Yes. So, <laughs> so it's kind of mad that we have these two separate debates as if they're not affecting each other. Yeah. And the thing that really freaked me out and why I just went into a total flat panic after I'd agreed to write this book 
is that you pull the thread of a farm and you get into these foundational philosophical questions about how we want to organise society. Mm. Are we a controlled economy? Are we a free market? Are we somewhere in the middle? Do we think about, you know, providing food for people? What are our safety nets? Who who controls land? What is man's, you know, role as far as nature goes? And they sound like really airy-fairy, mm. crazy philosophical things to be talking about well, on a Guardian well, podcast. No, 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 but no. it's actually, they're actually fundamental questions, well, I think, that policymakers need to think about. Well, well, it sort of determines whether you live or die and how you live. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, and, and, and I think journalism, which is our joint enterprise, is the story of how we live and how we could live better. Just sort of getting back to that curve that you were sort of narrating in in the opening about what the book's about, right, that we sort of, we've had these few decades where a big rationalisation has been happening in the farm sector in Australia, which is market-driven, which is the result of ending protection. Um, well, farmers have always been exporters over the history of Australia, but like a different export orientation the sort of structural adjustment that has happened in a bunch of manufacturing industries, including manufacturer of food, right? You sort of chart, I think, this path where that has, did you say leaner and meaner and mm. large? Yeah, right. So it's sort of created the this sort of um, underreported and unheralded change in the nature of farming in the country. Like most people listening to us would think that a farm is sort of a family on a on a property uh, when farming isn't like that in Australia at the moment, is it? Tell us, tell us what farming actually is right so, now. So it, the figures are tricky because it would be true to say that most farm businesses are probably still run by families, but... What's happened over since the 70s, and these are Abares figures as well, is that the large farm owners have increased from, you know, single digits to about 20%. Mm. And they now produce sort of two-thirds of the produce income and they own two-thirds of the land. So there's there's been this big kind of flip from the small to mid-sized family farm mm-hmm. to larger farms that are either corporate-owned or corporatized families. Mm. What do you mean by corporatized families? So a family that has a corporate structure. So they're, they're a big, big operation. They're producing a lot of output and, you know, they, they control a fair bit of land. And, you know, in the conversations I had with corporate farmers who are, you know, companies, mm. just outright companies, they get a bit pissed off because they say, well, you know, like there are family farms that are bigger than us, mm. like bigger than um, bigger than very large corporate run farms. Why don't you hassle them about you know, <laughs> what they're doing. taking over the world, <laughs> yes. you know? So it's re- they're really opaque figures. And actually one of the things I found was if we collect the data, it's not transparent right. and it's not easy to get to. Oh, interesting. Um, so... You know, I'd be happy if anyone pulled me up on my conclusions 
because I'd love to see the figures and I tried to get the figures and pretty much no one in government mm. would talk right. about them. Right. So yesterday I filled out the ag census for mm-hmm. our business and they collect a lot of figures, mm. but I don't know where they're going. Right. So and they're not they're not transparently available. They're not transparently mm. available. There's things like that ABES report and and the other thing is Farming's just a complex business. So comparing a broadacre farm that does sheep and wheat like us to a horticultural farm, to a managed investment farm, to a private equity farm, to a, you know, there are so many different elements. And I think most people who have been watching farming would know that farmers are notoriously complicated in Mm. their tax structures. Mm. And so just getting to the bottom. I mean, Guardian did that project about who who owns Australia and that project essentially found that it was very difficult to, to actually mm. know who owns Australia. We know the foreign owners of Australia mostly, but even that is very hard to see. Mm. Uh, but we don't have visibility around how that structural change is happening, and I think that's an issue. Mm. Well, I guess uh, um, I've read the book, um, and it's a bit mean of us really to be recording this episode because it actually doesn't come out for a few more weeks, but I was literally so excited when I read it. Gabby can testify that I was uh, onto a quick sticks. Um, It's a really important book at a whole lot of levels, mainly for the questions it asks. Um, But I guess... I wondered as I was reading um, whether or not, because obviously just sort of tracking back to where that question was about, well, we've been through structural adjustment for food manufacturers, i.e. farmers, right? And And in a way, it's not that different to other structural adjustments that have played out for car makers and for, you know, other even for journalists, dare we say, right? And we all kind of ran headlong into globalisation thinking that it was the nirvana and it would, you know, it was the sort of tide that would lift all boats and all of that sort of stuff. And obviously, you know, in terms of global wealth and um, it, it has, right, it, it, it has been the tide that lifted all boats. So I guess I wondered reading it whether some of the problems that you narrate, and, and we should get to the crux really of what your book finds, which is that, the price that farmers are getting for food now does not reflect the costs of production. And by that, you mean the cost of sustainable production. Sustainable production, environment, the environmental costs of producing food are higher than the price on the shelf. Exactly, right. It's, and it's a really important observation um, because it's sort of that then turns it back on the radar. We'll do in all sorts of ways, right? What are the implications of that, of having food on shelves that is cheaper than the costs of producing it in a way that is commensurate with maintaining human life on the planet? It's a pretty bloody big question your book asks, mate, which is why we're in here, right? So breaking that down a little bit though, right, is is the problem open markets, or is the problem that deregulation has not been implemented effectively? I'm thinking this may sound, sound like a totally dumb comparison, right? But in the tech sector, like social media, you know, the, the, the move fast and break things companies, right, uh, rose up 
when deregulation and globalisation was king, right? They became the, the the new kind of Vanderbilts and, you know, these they amassed enormous economic and societal power because they rose, they became large. There were, there were no checks on them, right? Um, they amassed too much market power. Now regulators around the world are scratching their heads and thinking, oh, Christ, what do we do now, right? In a way, sort of tracking it back to the farm example, part of the reason that costs are being driven down in the farm sector is the power of the supermarkets. And we have an extraordinarily concentrated supermarket market in Australia. So do you get what I mean? Is is the problem like the whole project, call it the open market project, or is the problem that the open market project is not being implemented with a sufficient eye for detail? And by that, I mean looking at the distributional effects, looking, is it fair? Is it reasonable? Have we got enough competition in all of the facets of the market in the food chain? What do you reckon? I think it is lack of competition. I think competition policy caused less competition. <laughs> but that's, that's yeah, like, seriously. That's, yeah, no, no, that's, yeah, so, that's what I'm so, trying to in my bumbling fashion <laughs> get to. So, so, you know, you have all of these kind of animals that came out of protective agricultural policies, yeah. single trading desks and yeah, things, yeah. and they're all broken up because we're going the going wheat board, headlong. the sugar board, the yeah, rice yeah. board, yeah, the, yeah, the exactly. barnacling board, whatever. The purple onion board. purple onion board. Beautiful. <laughs> so you have all of these structures and we break them up because we say, well, you need lots of competition. We need lots of people competing against each other, yeah. but it causes less competition. Yeah. There are less businesses. The wheat board is broken up and one part sold to Cargill's, the biggest, you know, yes. operation, agricultural operation in the world. Another part sucked up by another one of the behemoths. Well, and yeah. Food system analysts talk about the hourglass effect. Right. So you've got lots of farmers on one end and lots of consumers on the other and in the middle, there's this narrow waste of companies that control how that yes, equation they're the happens. Pipes. They're the, 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 pipe the pipeline operators is squeezed, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if it was your sewage system, it would be blocked. Yes. And uh, that control, I think, is really, really interesting. Now, the other thing I think that really blew my socks off was I had been looking at figures like those ABF figures you quoted at the top of the program about the effect of climate change. I'm thinking, why on earth would large corporates who've largely been in either the agribusiness input end, that is putting all the chemicals, selling selling the farmers yeah. all the stuff they the need stuff. to farm, yeah. or they've been in the food processing end, so turning the wheat into bread or the supermarket end, mm. why would they want to do the risky bit, which is growing the food, right? <laughs> like that never made any sense. You get a whole bunch of people to do that and their families and they can pull their belts in when there's a drought and then they can let them out and yeah. put and in the a new kitchen. And the missus can go and yeah. do a few shifts in the hospital through yeah. the week to, yeah, you yeah. know, the, the off-farm income to keep it all going. And, yeah, yeah, anyway, sorry, go on. But why would they want to do that? And the answer is, I discovered... That in a very disrupted world, in a in a in the middle of you know all these global trade tensions between the U.S. and China in pandemics, actually agriculture is a safe place to park money mm -hmm. in land if you have patient capital. 
Well, this is so the other thing sit. you get into, like yeah. the, the, that land prices have gone up massively. The land prices mm. are nuts. Like every farming conversation I, I, I hear, every barbecue, every football line, everyone is talking about the land prices. And on the one hand, they're sort of all chuffed because it means, A, their debt, the value of their debt's gone down yes. because the land price has gone up, so they, their asset has increased. Yeah. But uh, it means they can borrow more at a time when there's record low interest rates. But they're also kind of nervous because what does it mean if the return for farms mm. Is decoupled from the yes, land price, which yes. is what has which happened. Going and on. Rural Bank yeah. has done, you know, does a land value report every year. And they've essentially said that. They've said, suddenly we've seen this kind of decoupling and we don't know where it's going to go. Oh, mm, <laughs> you yes. know, oh, where, shit. Where, where does this end? The oh shit moment yeah. in, the, yeah. in the aggregate but we're business talking, report. You know, land price growth in the, in the figure of, you know, 20% in mm. Western Australia. Mm. Like 20%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 20-something percent, 12%, you know, yeah. so, on average in the that kind of teenage figure. Yeah. So what's going on there? Well, it's, it's well, it's a bubble of some type, but it's but it sort of makes sense though because if you think about your, uh, you know, wh where, you, where you are fundamentally at with this book, that, you know, humans will need to continue to eat in a world or a natural environment which is turning against humanity because we haven't managed it very well, right? If we sort of boil it right down to that, like the, well, let's call that the oh fuck moment, right? Mm -hmm. That we mm -hmm. that we do need to um, continue to eat, but <sighs> there's a lot of factors working against that happening sustainably and in a way that rewards the producers, right? So it's sort of like, it makes sense to me in a way because it's sort of like, it's exactly as you set it up, right, in terms of the land value thing because if patient, if capital is patient, if capital is prepared to just sit there and wait for a sort of steady income stream, it isn't a fundamentally safe bet that people are going to need to eat. Well, yeah, and population projections, 10 billion by 2050. Yeah. Demand rising massively for food. Yes. And the other interesting thing, and, you know, we might get into food tribes um, at some yeah, stage. Yeah, definitely want to get in there. But uh, if you talk to Andrew Whitelaw and um, Matt Dalgleish, who are ag watchers, and they look, one um, Matt tracks the meat prices and Andrew tracks the grain prices, right? So the wheat price has bumped along over the last couple of decades. It sort of goes like that. Yeah. Um, she gestures along a, <laughs> oh, yeah. along a flattish yeah, oh, yeah, line. Sorry, 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 you're not watching us. Yes, it's sort of, yeah, flat, flat the meat line. meat price. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Boom, has gone up, up to the sky, right? Yeah. So while at the same time we're getting this climate change debate about how we should be cutting back our meat consumption, and Western countries are doing that, yep. the price signal to farmers yes, is, is all cows, about the cows. steak, yeah. right? All about the chop. Mm. It's not about the wheat. Yeah. It's not about the lentils or chickpeas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually about the meat, and that demand is coming from Asia. Yeah. So while ever those incomes keep rising, the demand for meat is is going through the roof. Yes, and and pushing against those sustainability against, factors that we that yeah. we've been talking about. Um, yeah, I want to I want to end um, the conversation because you with where you get to on there's no 
you know, despite this being one of the most important underpinnings of civilizations and nations, um, there's no actual coherent policy making around this. I want to end there. So let's, before we end there, let's talk about food tribes. Um, because uh, that's sort of, uh, we live in the age of identity politics and, uh, you know, I, I dot, 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 therefore I am, I'm a, you know, whatever I am. Um, you delve into that too, which is quite interesting. Tell, tell, tell the folks about that. Yeah, I interviewed this guy called Mike Lee who is a, a food futurist mm-hmm. and the way he described what's happening in the food consumption market is eerily like what we've been tracking in politics for the last couple of decades, this kind of polarisation that's happening, mm-hmm. the capacity for us to signal our values through what we eat. Am I a vegetarian, uh, carnivore, pescatarian, vegan, all the many um, food tribes? Uh, and social media also allows me to join with my like-minded tribe and amplify mm. Uh, my values through that. And some of the research in the US that's coming out is is actually saying young people, so my kids, your kids' age, um, are spending more on what they eat to signal their values mm. than they are on their clothes. Mm. So you and I used to buy the lo- latest denim jacket or yep. whatever it was you to bet. signify how we denim. looked, right? Acid wash. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> they're they're spending money on, yes, on food. On food, yeah. It's sort of it, it's interesting, isn't it? That that, but it's it's also um, y- you look at it on the consumption side, but I think you look at it also implicitly on the production side, though. That there's some of some farmers who are regenerative. I can never say that uh, word. Regenerative. Regenerative. I don't know why I can't say that word. Regenerative. Farmers, well, so farmers who are interested in sustainability uh, are farming in their preferred method. Some of them are able to extract higher prices for their produce as a consequence of being able to account for the way the meat is produced. Like there's uh, there's that bloke, the lamb bloke. Um, Vince Heffernan. Thank you. Yes, yes who, who, who you, you raise as an example. So mm. it's sort of happening... It's happening both on the producer and the consumer end, I think, in a in a strange way. So And that that regenerative word is a trigger word amongst conventional farmers ah, because they yes. would say still, still. We, Yeah, still. Mm-hmm. We are trying to do things sustainably, i.e. get the most moisture out of the soil, um, and use our various inputs in order to increase the, the, the greatest possible yield in order to feed the most possible people. Yeah. So they're saying on the one, they would say the regenerative farmers, uh, you know, are, are delivering product to markets who can pay the extra. Yes. Whereas the single mother in Western Sydney yes. who needs the cheapest possible chop yeah, or the cheapest can't do that. loaf yeah. of bread, they yeah. can't do that. And so there's this real kind of debate and fracturing of farmers in the same way eaters are fracturing, mm. uh, where it ends. Yes, Nobody who, knows. Who knows? Um, speaking of who knows, <laughs> let's do the policy uh, thing just to end up. You make the point that, uh, well, uh, we, we shouldn't say there's no policy. That's not right, is it? It's not that there's no policy. There's no connected policy. Thank you. That's what I need. Yes. There's no connected policy, which is weird, isn't it? It's it's really weird when you think about the importance of it, and 
back in back in pandemic territory, there has been a debate triggered uh, about sovereign capability across a range of fronts uh, because of people storming, you know, Dunny Roll aisles and you know and pasta, <laughs> pasta and, and yes, but it's sort of but in a way it's sort of weird because we've we sort of had it in a more focused way on PPE, you know, p- protective equipment and. Oh, respirators and stuff like that. And we sort of touched down kind of on, oh, shit, what if there's no food in the supermarket? We we sort of touched there, but only very lightly. Oh, it's a very light touch. Very light it's touch. Very light touch. And it's kind of strange, again, which sort of brings you to this point that there are, again, if if our meaning has not been clear because, you know, when Gab and I get together, mm. it's... <laughs> God knows, we just talk. Um, but uh, the the point being the sort of inherent lack of sustainability across all, you know, across everything, right, including whether or not we can feed ourselves in an environment where producers can't cover their costs of production and where comparative advantage means that you produce things in certain countries because you're supposed to be better at it than other countries and then what happens when you shut the border and you can't move stuff around, then all kinds of conundrums um present themselves. Can I say, I did love John Karen. Oh, wasn't he great? Oh, my God. John Karen. I'll just say this really quickly and then Gabby will actually talk about her own book. Sorry about this. I love this because um, uh, John John Karen, uh, if you're a youngster, you won't know John Karen, uh, but he was a treasurer in the Labor government and, and he, he had Long ag. Long-standing yes, ag, ag minister. One of the longest-standing ag ministers, in but, fact. Yes, and uh, and uh, walked into a cupboard, I think, sadly, at one point, maybe known for walking into a cupboard at the end of a press conference. Anyway, maybe I've made that up. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It's like and completely irrelevant. Sorry about that. Um, but um, anyway, just there's this lovely vignette in the book where John Kerrin, who was in the Hawke Keating Ministry, so that was like at the at the peak of globalisation, open markets, peak flinging open the curtains, flinging it open. <laughs> we we got we got no pants on, but the curtains are open, right? And John Kerrin sitting in the middle of that, thinking, "Well, I'm not so sure about this comparative know. advantage stuff." <laughs> so good. It was pretty. Sorry, amazing. it was just fantastic. If you're a political nerd, and most of you will be, you'll know exactly why we're laughing, but it really, it was just a brilliant little vignette in the book. Anyway, Dars, let's do this policy thing. So no connected policy. What do you, let's no explain that a bit. policy. So I think one of the things that surprised me were people all coming to similar conclusions about maybe some of the system is broken. So maybe the the dream that was supposed to come to fruition out of globalisation and flinging open those curtains yeah. hasn't sort of touched down in the way that we thought it would. Yes. And I think that everyone's trying to work out how we value or create the right market signals in our market environment in order to push the right behaviour, nudge the right behaviour, yeah. right? Yeah. Particularly when it comes to farming. Yeah. And you did that groundbreaking pod with <laughs> David Littleproud oh, where he actually <laughs> talked about, you yes. know, yes. A, climate change yes. is a thing. Oh, I know. And mm. Like mm. A-bears. Yeah. Who knew? Um, <laughs> climate change. <laughs> and, and B, like he's trying to work out 
you know, how how do you make farmers, how do you allow farmers to value some of the other stuff apart from food yeah, production? exactly. How do you get a revenue stream just yes. by doing the right thing on your land? I'm sorry, I don't mean that pejoratively. I just mean, you know, planting trees, best... Native habitats. Nat- yes, best soil water. practices, all that stuff, yes. Giving people an income stream for being custodians of the land, dare we say. And, you know, some of this is really kind of structural wonky politics in the sense that um, freaked me out slightly when <laughs> I was trying to get my head around it. But people like Ken Henry saying, you know, GDP doesn't adequately account yes. yeah. for how we think about the natural world. Yes. You pull a, a tonne of iron ore out of the ground and it appears from nowhere. Yeah. You don't lose that asset when you sell it. You don't. The future generations don't lose that asset mm. by selling it. Um, so I think some of those issues are really starting to push people in all sorts of walks of life to think about how we can revalue. It's like we're in this um, flux situation where everyone who thinks this way is trying to work out the ideal policy that connects all those places. Mm. And at its most mechanical, I've seen ideas like you would have a dep sec in each department, deputy secretary, Mm -hmm. and bring them together for a kind of, oh, I don't know, like a national cabinet style thing, but that isn't cabinet, that would, where you'd have people in all the different expertise rounds in the same room saying, you know, how can we we stop uh, these sorts of interruptions to supply lines in yes. the future. Yes. You know, I thought that report that Stephen Bartos did, uh, former... Finance, finance, finance secretary, I think. secretary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, who said, yes, we are um, food secure in, in what we produce, but the fuel we use to put the crop in, the mm. tractors, the widgets, the pumps, the pipes, the paraphernalia, everything we use on farm is pretty much imported. Mm. Um, so it's not, we're part of long global supply chains. Mm. We might grow the wheat, but we send the wheat to Indonesia to make the noodles and they send it back to us so we can buy it in Coles or Woolies. Mm. So, Mm. you know, it's all these interdependencies that I'm not sure the current political system is well set up to work through, Mm. even though there have been so many reports put in bottom drawers where people have thought about this, including Ken Henry, uh, including all the national climate research facilities that were shut down in the last decade, Land and Water Australia, all of these organisations were beginning to connect policy ideas. Who needs those people who connect ideas? And then... Yeah. We just chuck out what the last government did because the last government did it. Yeah. And so there's no long-term no. vision of policy. No, exactly. Anyway, slightly depressing note to end on. But it's. Uh, but anyway, you can tell uh, that this book kicks in a really big door and asks some really pertinent and important questions about whether, well, it's, it, whether, whether we are preparing. Sleepwalking. Well, sleepwalk. Well, yeah, sleepwalking into a disaster. I was trying to think of something nicer, a nicer way to construe that, but let's just call it what it is. I think there are some ost- optimistic. Oh, no, no, no. It's not a downer um, of a yeah. read at all. It's mm. it, No, it's it's a really energising read um, and, uh, and you know, and, well, invigorating is a strange word to say about a book, but you know what I mean. 
Yeah. So no, no, it's not. It's not depressing. It, but it will make you think across, uh, and it will make you join a bunch of dots that you don't necessarily join. Uh, you know, living our very urban Australian lives, quite removed from the business of producing food. And it will. Uh, it'll be out. Uh, it'll be out in August. August 31st. Yes, thirty-first of August. Sorry, because we're really forward sizzling that away way too early. But like I said, I did get really excited when I read it. Um, so look it up. You might be able to pre-order it and stuff. You can pre-order. There you go. Through yeah. my social media links. Okay. There you go. We'll track uh, Gabby down online and pre-order the damn thing. Uh, thank you all for listening. We appreciate it. Thank you to Miles and to Alison for producing. Uh, you know the drill. Leave us a rating or a review or. A shout at us on social media, you know where we are. Uh, we'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed... The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.